From Boomers to Millennials is a modern U.S. history podcast, providing a fresh look at the historic events that shaped current generations from the end of World War II up to the present day. Welcome to the first of two episodes about the year 1960, a.k.a. episode 15, Military Industrial Complexities and the Last Days of the Eisenhower Era. When we started our podcast, we favored the concept of covering the key events of each year in a single 45-minute long episode. Other than in our many supplemental episodes that have done a deeper dive into more marginal topics, we have stuck to that basic formula so far. However, the turbulent 60s were so packed with history that we will have to divide a few select years, including 1960, into two separate full-length episodes in order to cover them in a way that does them justice. This first episode about the year 1960 focuses on foreign policy and civil defense matters, and also wraps up the story of President Dwight D. Eisenhower's second term in office. The second 1960 episode will cover domestic issues, including a new wave of civil rights activism in the South, and the year's presidential election race between Democrat John F. Kennedy and Republican Richard M. Nixon. At the beginning of 1960, President Eisenhower had considerable cause for confidence and pride in his two-term presidency. He had achieved many of his domestic policy goals, and he remained personally popular with the American public. After engaging in productive face-to-face negotiations with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev during 1959, see episode 14 for details, he hoped to conclude his term by putting the United States on track for better relations with the USSR, enabling him to claim a presidential legacy that promoted international peace, economic prosperity, and financial stability. Eisenhower hoped to move the U.S. federal government toward greater fiscal conservatism, including a fully balanced budget, but the heavy cost of Cold War military expenditures remained a major obstacle. Only through a diplomatic agreement with the Soviets that guaranteed mutual disarmament could a substantial reduction in federal government spending be made possible. However, Ike's dream died on the first day of May 1960, just weeks before a scheduled peace summit meeting between the superpowers in Paris. In his book, From Colony to Superpower, U.S. Foreign Relations Since 1776, the historian George C. Herring recounts that on that fateful May day, quote, Soviet surface-to-air missiles shot down a U-2 spy plane over the Ural Mountains, deep inside Russian territory. The U.S. military intelligence flight had left from Pakistan and South Asia, headed northwest into Soviet airspace, and was scheduled to finally touch down in Norway, which was one of America's key NATO allies in Northern Europe. According to author Gene Edward Smith, quote, the flight would require nine hours and would cover 3,800 miles, passing over suspected Russian missile sites en route. Ironically, it was to have been the last flight of the U-2 program, close quote. Of course, Soviet missiles made certain that this flight failed to complete its mission. After shooting down the trespassing foreign aircraft, the Soviets located the wreckage and discovered they had bagged an American spy plane. The U-2 plane had been piloted by an Air Force officer named Francis Gary Powers, 
Like many American men of his generation, Powers had used military service to open up opportunities for career advancement and adventure not available in his hometown. He had grown up in a hard-scrabble Kentucky coal mining community. He spent years as a military pilot and had flown dozens of successful missions prior to setting off on the ill-fated U-2 flight. After being shot down, he survived the crash by ejecting and making use of his parachute. Unfortunately for Powers, soon after ditching and landing on Soviet soil, he was located, captured, and imprisoned by the USSR. Powers' survival was the source of some controversy. Historian James T. Patterson writes in his book Grand Expectations, the United States 1945-1974, to that, quote, The CIA, which had charge of the flights, had equipped Powers with a needle dipped in deadly poison so that he could kill himself before being captured, close quote. Powers later claimed that he had been told that the suicide needle was an option provided to soldiers who hoped to avoid potential torture by captors, but that its use was not mandatory. There is still some debate on this point, but one fact is certain. The U-2 crash and Powers' capture eventually became international front-page news that sparked a new stage of Cold War tensions. In his presidential biography entitled Eisenhower in War and Peace, Gene Edward Smith argues that although the lack of major diplomatic crises had been in part a credit to Eisenhower's policies, it also involved a certain amount of luck. With the U-2 incident in May 1960, that luck had finally run out, in large part because Ike had allowed his administration to begin pushing its luck. We first mentioned the U-2 spy plane back in episode 12, when we identified it as the source of intelligence that allowed the president to be confident that, despite technological advances like Sputnik, the Soviets were still lagging behind the U.S. in the nuclear arms race. However, Smith notes that, quote, By 1960, it had become clear that the U-2 was fast becoming obsolete, Soviet missiles were improving in range and accuracy, and it was only a matter of time before a plane would be shot down. Close quote. The U.S. Air Force had been developing another secret satellite program called Corona, believe it or not, to replace the U 2 program that had lost its edge, but the Corona spy plane program wasn't yet operational. In early 1960, the CIA under the leadership of the hawkish Alan Dulles, sought presidential authorization for more of the increasingly risky U-2 flights. The agency had already obtained an accurate basic assessment of Soviet missile capacity, but expressed concern that U.S. intelligence officials might still have some gaps in their knowledge. According to George Herring, quote, Eisenhower had long been uneasy about the U-2 flights, recognizing that they potentially constituted an act of war, close quote. Nevertheless, the president reluctantly approved another U-2 reconnaissance flight in April. Smith reports that, quote, the flight took place without incident, and the photos revealed no new missile sites, close quote. But the CIA asked for one more flight in May, and Ike once again agreed. That final flight was the one piloted by Powers that was shot down over the USSR. The president was quickly informed once the military discovered that the U-2 plane was missing. 
but according to Smith, the U.S. government did not appreciate the seriousness of the situation, quote, since it was assumed that the plane would be destroyed on impact and the pilot would be dead, close quote. Smith argues that, quote, Eisenhower thought it best to ignore the incident, hoping that Khrushchev might do the same in the interest of harmony at the summit. Those hopes were dashed on May 5th, when Khrushchev, in a lengthy public speech to the Supreme Soviet Council, announced they had shot down an American spy deep inside the Soviet Union. Khrushchev blamed Pentagon militarists for the act, intentionally avoiding placing direct blame upon President Eisenhower. Close quote. In response to Khrushchev's accusation of illegal American spying in Soviet airspace, Eisenhower at first denied that the downed plane was engaged in espionage at all, claiming it had just been conducting meteorological research and had veered off course. Historian James T. Patterson contends that Khrushchev played his cards carefully, keeping secret the fact that his government had captured the American pilot because he, quote, hoped that the U.S. would spin a tissue of lies, in which case the Soviet Union could humiliate Eisenhower and claim a big propaganda victory. The ruse worked, after American officials confirmed only that a weather reconnaissance plane was missing, Khrushchev then sprang his trap on May 7th, proclaiming that powers had been captured and had confessed, and that Russian officials had the plane, complete with photographic equipment, that proved powers had been spying. Close quote. Smith adds that Khrushchev specifically accused the CIA and mocked the U.S. government's lie about the plane being meant for meteorological research by quipping, The whole world knows that Alan Dulles is no weatherman. Close quote. Wow, that was almost as bad as Sean Connery's attempt at a Russian accent in Hunt for Red October. Anyway, Khrushchev was genuinely angered by the U-2 flights, but Patterson argues that he also made a big fuss about them at the summit in order to embarrass the USA and to thereby demonstrate his toughness to wavering Soviet allies, especially the communist Chinese. According to Professor Herring, Khrushchev wanted to gain the propaganda victory without necessarily destroying the summit negotiations, but he put himself in a position where he needed some kind of American concession in order to continue negotiating without appearing weak. He floated the idea that the hardliners in Ike's administration may have been responsible for the spy flight, not the president himself. Of course, Eisenhower knew this idea was wrong and probably found it insulting. Khrushchev then asked Eisenhower for a formal apology and a promise of no more violations of Soviet airspace. Ike stated that he would suspend any further U-2 flights, but showing his own brand of toughness, he refused to apologize to the Soviet premier for the incident. According to Smith, the president justified his refusal to apologize by, quote, pointing out that the U-2 flights involved no aggressive intent and were only gathering information to guard against surprise attacks, close quote. One has to wonder how accepting an American leader would be if the Soviets had used this defense to justify invading our airspace. Ike's argument did not persuade Khrushchev. Instead, the outraged Soviets stormed out in protest, and the summit meeting came to a dead end. Khrushchev also withdrew his invitation, mentioned in episode 14, for Eisenhower to visit the Soviet Union. The president then faced the problem 
of explaining both the facts behind the U-2 incident and the subsequent failure of the Paris summit to the American public. Patterson notes that, quote, Eisenhower might then have kept quiet, but he was embarrassed by rumors that the U-2 mission had taken place without his authorization, and he resolved to set those rumors straight. He announced at a press conference on May 11th that he knew everything of importance that happened in his administration. The flight had been necessary, he added, because no one wants another Pearl Harbor, close quote. The president defended espionage as a quote-unquote distasteful but vital necessity. Smith argues that, quote, Eisenhower's decision to accept personal responsibility for the U-2 flights may have been the finest hour of his presidency, close quote, because he refused to listen to those who were encouraging him to blame subordinates for the decision. However, I take a different view. I don't think a president should get too much credit simply for coming clean with the American public, although there certainly have been other commanders-in-chief who probably would have doubled down on a cover-up rather than ever admit to making a mistake or promoting a deception. Regardless of the public effectiveness of Eisenhower's rationalizations for American espionage, the consequences of rising tensions between the superpowers after the failed Paris summit were serious and potentially dangerous. Herring opines that the U-2 incident, quote, destroyed the summit, cost the president and the United States heavily in prestige, and at any chance of substantive negotiations between the Americans and Soviets before the November 1960 U.S. elections, and left the Berlin situation more dangerous than ever, close quote. James T. Patterson concurs, suggesting that, quote, the legacy of the U-2 affair was negative for all involved, save perhaps Khrushchev, who scored the propaganda victory that he seemed to crave. American critics were chagrined to see Ike caught in a lie, not only to Khrushchev, but also to the American people. Close quote. Just a few months later, notes Herring, during autumn 1960, the Soviet leadership's aggressive tone alarmed the U.S. public when Premier Nikita Khrushchev attended a speech at the United Nations and responded to criticisms in the speech of Soviet policy in Eastern Europe by removing his shoe and pounding it furiously on his desk. The display may have been, quote, amusing had it not seemed so ominous, and it kept the Cold War threat very much alive in the minds of Americans, close quote. Meanwhile, Democratic presidential nominee John F. Kennedy spent the fall attacking the Eisenhower-Nixon administration for allegedly causing the USA to fall behind the Soviet Union in terms of military technologies and capabilities. Both major U.S. political parties were competing by the early 60s to appear as the faction that would be tougher on the Soviets and their communist allies throughout the world. Patterson concludes that, quote, The U-2 incident set in motion a hardening of Soviet-American relations that intensified during the next two years. Close quote. Sometimes lost in narratives about the U-2 crash's impact on international relations is the fate of the aircraft's unfortunate pilot, Francis Gary Powers. Portions of this under-examined historical story were explored in an interesting Tom Hanks movie from 2015 entitled Bridge of Spies. The film is based upon the true story of a Brooklyn-based lawyer named James Donovan, played by Hanks, 
who became entangled in the aftermath of the U-2 incident. Donovan was born into an Irish-American family in the New York City borough of the Bronx, and he went on to graduate from prestigious Harvard Law School. He then served in the Navy during World War II, and he subsequently worked as an assistant trial counsel at the Nuremberg Trials of Nazi War Criminals, which brings us all the way back to Episode 1A. After spending several years in private law practice, in 1957, Donovan was appointed to provide a legal defense for a man known as Rudolf Abel, who had been arrested in New York City and charged with being a Soviet spy. According to the British historian Alex von Tunzelman, the true identity of the man who identified himself as Rudolf Abel was a British-born communist named William Fisher. Quote, he had been born to a Russian mother in Newcastle in northern England before immigrating to the Soviet Union, close quote. However, the Americans did not know the truth about his background, or more importantly, his mission, and the man known as Abel wasn't talking. Donovan's client, Mr. Abel, was convicted of espionage, but the gifted lawyer successfully persuaded the judge not to give Abel a death sentence, such as the one the Rosenbergs had received for espionage earlier in the decade, see episode 4. Donovan also appealed Abel's conviction to the U.S. Supreme Court, claiming that the government had conducted an illegal search in pursuit of his client, but the court ruled against this argument by a 5-4 to four margin. Publicly offering a vigorous defense of a Soviet spy at the height of the Cold War, unsurprisingly, made life difficult for Donovan and his family. They were shunned for a time by many in the local community, although for dramatic purposes, the film exaggerates the extent of the threats and persecution that they faced. Yet Donovan's representation of a controversial Soviet agent opened up an unexpected opportunity for him in 1962, when the U.S. government informed the attorney that the Soviets were interested in doing a prisoner swap. They sought to recover their asset, Rudolf Abel, in exchange for the downed U-2 pilot, Francis Gary Powers, who by this point had been convicted in a show trial and sentenced to three years in a Soviet prison. American officials sent Donovan to Berlin in order to negotiate the exchange. In my opinion, the most compelling scenes in Bridge of Spies depict Donovan's journeys in East Germany. They reflect the bleakness, poverty, and chaos of life in East Berlin at that time, and they show the Berlin Wall being constructed to block East Germans from escape into non-communist West Berlin. Von Tunzelman notes that this scene takes some dramatic license with the actual chronology of events. The East Germans had completed construction of the wall several months before Donovan's arrival in Berlin. A successful negotiation between Donovan's American team and the communist forces led powers to be freed, in exchange for the U.S. returning Abel to Soviet custody, and the American pilot returned at last to the United States. Although some in the public criticized Powers for allowing himself to be captured alive, the U.S. government reviewed the case and determined that he had behaved honorably. During the mid-1960s, the CIA issued Powers a medal known as the Intelligence Star for Valor. After leaving military service, Powers spent several years as a news helicopter pilot in Los Angeles 
before unfortunately dying in a 1977 crash at the age of 47. Among the most noteworthy casualties of the U-2 incident, Patterson writes, was that it, quote, destroyed whatever hopes had existed for a nuclear test ban agreement between the USA and the USSR, close quote. Even in the absence of an agreement, it was increasingly becoming clear to the superpowers that their reckless detonations of powerful atomic weapons had to be curtailed for the health of the planet and its population. According to history professors Hanretta, Brody, and Duminal, throughout the 1950s, quote, bomb shelters and civil defense drills provided a daily reminder of the threat of nuclear war, and atomic research and testing had a devastating impact on human health and the environment, close quote. During the early years of the Cold War, the U.S. government had portrayed nuclear technology as something that could be safely harnessed for the good of mankind. Back in 1954, President Eisenhower praised the creation of America's first commercial nuclear power plant in western Pennsylvania. By that time, the Soviets already had nuclear power plants in operation. Both superpowers emphasized the upsides and downplayed the dangers of nuclear energy. During the early Cold War, even highly destructive nuclear weapons were often portrayed by U.S. officials as a kind of necessary evil that would preserve international peace. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles had boasted that the Soviets would not dare provoke a third world war in Europe because aggression there would be met with massive nuclear retaliation by the United States. However, by the end of the Eisenhower era, the hazards of the nuclear age were becoming undeniable. According to historians Murren Gersel, Johnson, Rosenberg, McPherson, and Rosenberg, who are not a law firm, but rather the co-authors of the textbook Liberty, Equality, Power, by the late 50s, quote, responding to worries about the health hazards of atomic fallout, both superpowers slowed above-ground testing, close quote. However, the damage had already been done for those Americans who had previously been exposed to the radioactive fallout. Patterson writes that, quote, the United States exploded at least 203 nuclear weapons in the Pacific and in Nevada between 1946 and 1961, exposing an estimated 200,000 civilian and military personnel to some degree of radiation. Americans near the Nevada test sites were rocked and startled by blasts and flashes of light from the explosions. Thousands of people employed in cleanup operations as well as downwinders in western states, claimed to suffer from the effects of radioactivity as a result of these tests. Close quote. To the federal government's lasting discredit, U.S. officials downplayed the potential danger of these tests at the time. Patterson argues that, quote, It is now clear that experts underestimated the dangers from nuclear experiments. It is also clear that officials in charge of atomic testing knowingly exposed human beings to nuclear fallout, close quote. Murren and his co-authors report that, quote, government documents finally declassified in the 1980s confirmed that people who lived downwind from nuclear test sites during the 1940s and 50s suffered a number of atomic-related illnesses. Subsequent new revelations showed that the government had covertly experimented with radioactive materials 
on unsuspecting American citizens. Close quote. The so-called downwinders greatly outnumbered the unlucky few who were intentionally exposed to radiation by federal defense agencies, but this larger group also had substantial cause to feel wronged by the U.S. government. According to Eric Newman of KUER, a Salt Lake City-based national public radio affiliate, quote, thousands of people living in Nevada, Utah, and Arizona at the time of the Nevada test site nuclear explosions were unknowingly blanketed with radioactive fallout. The result is a legacy of high rates of illness and diagnoses of 19 different cancers, close quote. In 1990, the United States Congress passed the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, which was subsequently signed into law by President George H.W. Bush. The bill provided financial compensation for downwinders harmed by nuclear fallout and also gave benefits to uranium miners throughout the American West who had also been exposed to dangerous levels of radiation in the workplace. Newman reports that, quote, To date, the federal government has paid out $2.3 billion to around 50,000 people. Close quote. As terrible as the U.S. government's early Cold War recklessness toward the health of ordinary citizens strikes us today, the bipartisan passage of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act during the late Cold War era reminds us of a strange time when Congress actually was able to habitually pass legislation to address major social problems. Weird, right? Other legacies of 1950s U.S. national defense efforts would also have negative effects upon the long-term health and safety of millions of Americans. Patterson notes that, quote, the legacy of Eisenhower foreign policy in Vietnam after 1956 was also grim and lasting, close quote. We first discussed Vietnam in Episode 2, describing how, in 1945, President Truman ignored an appeal for U.S. assistance from a Vietnamese independence movement leader named Ho Chi Minh, whom the American government distrusted because of his communist leanings. Instead, the Truman administration opposed Vietnamese independence and supported the restoration of Vietnam as a colony of the French Empire, which was an important U.S. ally. The Americans helped to fund the French in their war against communist Vietnamese insurgents well into the mid-1950s. It may seem strange that Vietnam, a small, obscure country halfway around the world, was so important to the Americans, but after the fall of China to communism and the Korean War, the USA was highly sensitive to any further expansions of the communist bloc in East Asia. After France's ultimate defeat, by communist Viet Minh guerrilla forces at Dien Bien Phu, discussed back in Episode 9, the French abandoned their colony, signing on to the Geneva Accords in 1954, which divided their former territory of Indochina into three new countries, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. The agreement also temporarily split Vietnam into two governments, a communist regime in the north and a capitalist government in the south until an election could be held to unify the country. However, Patterson reports that the Americans, who were concerned about prospects for a communist victory, quote, encouraged South Vietnamese leader Ngo Dinh Diem 
to ignore the Geneva Accords' call for national elections in 56. The Eisenhower administration then proceeded to step up support for Diem's increasingly corrupt and dictatorial regime. The aid totaled some $1 billion between 1955 and 1961, making South Vietnam the fifth largest recipient in the world of American assistance during that time. Close quote. By the late 50s, the U.S. employed over 1,500 government agents in the South Vietnamese capital of Saigon. American aid to Diem's regime, quote, helped to control inflation and to rebuild the southern economy in urban places like Saigon, but it did little to help rural villages where more than 90% of the people of South Vietnam lived, close quote. Those villagers' hearts and minds remained quite open to persuasion by Ho Chi Minh's communist faction, whose agents were increasingly infiltrating South Vietnam from the north. Meanwhile, Murren and his co-authors report that Eisenhower ordered U.S. intelligence agencies to engage in covert operations in both North and South Vietnams in order to, quote, prevent Ho Chi Minh from becoming head of a unified Vietnam. Close quote. However, this may have been fighting an uphill battle. Ho Chi Minh was regarded as a national hero throughout all of Vietnam, not due to his communist beliefs, but instead because he had led the resistance movement that had successfully fought the Japanese who occupied Vietnam during World War II, and he had driven out the French during the mid-1950s. Patterson indicates that most U.S. aid to the South Vietnamese was going to their military, in order to prepare for a potential North Vietnamese invasion, rather than going to help improve the daily lives of the impoverished population. President Diem proved to be an autocratic ruler who, quote, filled village and provincial offices with friends, many of whom arrested local notables on trumped-up charges and forced them to pay bribes in order to get released. Diem shut down unfriendly newspapers and incarcerated many thousands of opponents, close quote. Murren and company observe that the policies of Diem, who is a member of the country's Roman Catholic religious minority, were alienating to many leaders of the nation's Buddhist religious majority. Officials in the Eisenhower administration were concerned about Diem's unpopularity with the South Vietnamese public and urged him to enact reforms. According to Patterson, quote, the dictator refused, whereupon the Americans, having no viable political alternatives in the South, relented and allowed Diem to ignore their demands, close quote. On the other hand, Patterson contends that, despite his attempts to portray himself as a champion of the rights of the world's workers, Ho Chi Minh arguably had an even worse human rights record. Quote, Estimates place the number of dissidents executed in the North at between 3,000 and 15,000, from 1954 to 1960, close quote. After using such purges to centralize his authority in North Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh finally gave his communist forces the green light in 1959 to launch a guerrilla warfare campaign in South Vietnam. This emerging Vietnamese civil war soon became more intense and bloodier. The Americans had already invested considerable resources in making certain that South Vietnam did not fall to the communists. Patterson notes that many State Department officials in the late 50s 
also worried about instability in the nation of Laos, which bordered North Vietnam, and feared that communists could soon take over that country as well. This seemed to justify the Eisenhower administration's domino theory that communism could spread like a disease throughout the nations of a particular region. However, according to Henretta Brody and Duminal, although, quote, American policymakers asserted that a non-communist South Vietnam was vital to U.S. security interests, in reality, Vietnam was too small a country to upset the international balance of power, and its communist movement was largely regional and nationalistic rather than being directed by Moscow, close quote. Nevertheless, the conditions that would tempt future U.S. presidents to escalate American military involvement in Southeast Asia were already in place by the end of the 50s. Indeed, Eisenhower already started this process during the last year of his presidency. Patterson observes that over 1,000 U.S. military quote-unquote advisors had been sent to Saigon even before John F. Kennedy's presidential inauguration in January 1961. We shall conclude this episode, part one of our exploration of the year 1960, by considering the overall legacy of the Eisenhower administration. Herring observes that Eisenhower's reputation among historians has improved in recent decades. Quote, No longer dismissed as an intellectual lightweight, he is generally recognized as a self-assured and prudent leader who understood politics and, having seen war firsthand, appreciated the limits of military power. Despite frequent crises, he managed to keep the peace during his time in office. Close quote. In a recent survey in 2021 by presidential historians, both of the U.S. presidents we have covered so far, Harry S. Truman and Dwight D. Eisenhower, were ranked as among the top 10 presidents in the entire history of the USA. Seeing this result gave me some pause, because for both men, my re-examination of their legacies through this podcast has led me to have decidedly mixed conclusions about their greatness. On the positive side of the ledger, although the fiery Truman and the cool, calculating Eisenhower were very different men in terms of personality and public image, both led presidencies that involved a relatively sensible and moderate approach to domestic policy, some progressive steps on race relations, and an approach to foreign policy that allowed the U.S. to avoid a global war against the communist superpowers of Russia and China without retreating into weakness or isolationism. One might also add that both men appear to have been, in most regards, fairly decent and honorable people, at least when compared to the standards of many other U.S. presidents and politicians. Then again, both Harry and Ike sometimes displayed poor judgment, especially by exaggerating the immediate domestic threat of communism to American society and by overestimating the power of the USA to direct and control global events. This led these post-war presidents to favor a rapid buildup of nuclear arms at home and to initiate interventions into foreign governments abroad. Perhaps concerned about his geopolitical legacy, President Eisenhower engaged in one final critically acclaimed act of statesmanship right before leaving office. He gave a provocative speech from the Oval Office during January 1961 that remains one of his most enduring historical legacies. This speech warned about the rise of a quote-unquote military-industrial complex, 
which was the close nexus of private defense contractors and U.S. military government agencies. According to biographer Gene Edward Smith, the idea for the speech came from White House advisors who thought the president should pattern it after George Washington's famous farewell address, warning against entangling alliances. Eisenhower noted in his speech that, quote, We annually spend more on military security than the net income of all U.S. corporations. This cements military establishment and large arms industry is new to the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. Close quote. The speech is now regarded as a moment of responsible statesmanship when a president used his bully pulpit to warn the American public of a potential danger to democratic government. The new left of the 1960s and many other anti-war movements that followed in its footsteps during recent decades have been particularly fond of the speech and have marshaled the term military-industrial complex for their criticisms of those who profit off international conflict and bloodshed. These activists also raised the possibility that private munitions industry lobbyists might pressure American politicians to enter into unnecessary wars in order to justify further weapons expenditures and even greater profits for these powerful defense contractors. To Eisenhower's more conservative advisors, however, the danger was also in the opposite direction of the federal government intervening in the marketplace by giving sweetheart deals to certain defense companies and not others, and also of ever-growing centralized government spending becoming the main source of income for private industry, which was an affront to the ideal of competitive private sector capitalism. George Herring credits Eisenhower's military-industrial complex speech with perceiving and expressing serious concerns about the way the Cold War was reshaping the nation's economy and its politics. But he also notes that the problem Ike identified of powerful military agencies being entangled with defense companies was in part a result of the president's own policies during the 50s. One of Eisenhower's legacies was a troubled Cold War foreign policy status quo that the presidents of the 1960s would inherit. His government continued to spend tremendous amounts of money on weapons built by private defense contractors. His Cold War strategy relied on stockpiling nuclear weapons as a way of avoiding conventional war. As a result, the military's nuclear arsenal grew to massive proportions during Ike's presidency. Herring reports that, quote, from 58 to 60 alone, the number of nuclear weapons increased from 6,000 to 18,000, overkill by any standard, close quote. Eisenhower had approved the nuclear weapons testing that negatively affected downwinders within U.S. borders. He had approved the construction of U-2 spy planes and then signed off on them being sent on missions into foreign airspace around the world. He had funded the American covert intelligence agencies and allowed them to aggressively interfere in the internal politics of foreign governments. Herring suggests that both Truman and Eisenhower failed notably 
in dealing with decolonization and third world nationalism. Quote, they never fully appreciated New Nation's understandable hypersensitivity to outside influences, especially Western influences, and their neutralist tendencies to avoid having to pick a side in the Cold War. Close quote. Instead, the Americans often seemed to perceive that any hostility to U.S. influence could only be motivated by communist ideas, rather than being based in an understandable desire of a sovereign nation to chart its own course free from any foreign patron. As a result, Ike's administration engaged in aggressive meddling into third-world governments that tried to distance themselves from the capitalist West. In allowing this course of action, Eisenhower probably gave too free a hand to the Dulles brothers, who he first introduced in Episode 9, when he signed off on many of their ill-considered schemes. Ike's militantly hawkish Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, died of cancer in 1959, but his brother Alan remained head of the CIA into the Kennedy administration. In 1961, Alan Dulles was a main advocate of a U.S.-backed coup attempt in Cuba that ended in disaster, and Kennedy then forced him to resign as CIA chief. But that's a story for another day. U.S. attempts at foreign interference under Eisenhower involved not only global espionage and uninvited electoral meddling, but also constituted giving large amounts of U.S. aid to unpopular anti-communist dictators, including Diem in South Vietnam. Herring argues that these actions often exacerbated tensions and aroused regional anti-American sentiment. The Eisenhower administration, quote, tightened U.S. ties with right-wing dictatorships in South Korea and Taiwan, thus inhibiting U.S. foreign policy flexibility in terms of relations with Mao's regime in China. It avoided military intervention in Vietnam in 1954, but its subsequent political commitments to South Vietnam left difficult decisions about war there for future U.S. leaders. Its rampant interventionism, including assassination plots against Third World leaders and the overthrow of properly elected governments, may have seemed necessary at the time, but these actions violated long-standing U.S. principles and had baleful long-term consequences. Close quote. It appears that, like Truman during the Korean War, Eisenhower saw during his final years in office that his foreign policy approach was becoming less effective and arguably was falling apart at the seams. Even the president himself later admitted that he had failed to achieve his international goals. Ike lamented that, quote, I had longed to give the United States and the world a lasting peace. I was only able to contribute to a stalemate. In a damning but fair assessment that goes further, Historian George C. Herring argues that, quote, With Cuba and Berlin unresolved, and Americans increasingly anxious, the Eisenhower administration bequeathed its successor problems that would lead to the most dangerous period of the Cold War. Close quote. Next time, we will provide a detailed introduction of the unfortunate successor who would have to bear the burden of all those problems, in part two of the year 1960. The From Boomers to Millennials podcast is co-produced by Aaron Rodgers and Logan Rodgers. 
Logo designed by Kami Schaefer and Aaron Rodgers. Our show is trying to build a bigger following, so we always welcome more podcast reviewers, Patreon donors, and social media followers. If you have comments or suggestions about our podcast, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at boomer2millennial at outlook.com. Here at the From Boomers to Millennials podcast, we promise our listeners that we will never spy on your private property by using a 1950s U-2 aircraft or even a modern-day drone. After reviewing the story of Francis Gary Powers, we know better than to risk provoking an international podcasting incident and ending up as a pawn in a prisoner exchange between history podcasts and true crime podcasts. The very thought of being held captive by those true crime podcasters is truly chilling. In conclusion, thank you for not listening to a true crime podcast today, and instead listening to our humble history podcast. Muchas gracias a todos. Many thanks to you all.